Father, I was reminded in the pages of your word this morning that about 2,000 years ago, a group maybe this size met at a church not unlike Providence, different in some respects, very similar in others. In a small country, Lord, the other side of the globe, for a regular Sabbath meeting. Unbeknownst to them, the Son of God was in their midst at that synagogue. And Jesus, you stood up, you asked for the scrolls, and they brought you the book of Isaiah. You opened it up. The same words that we will read later on in this service, you read those words, Jesus. And you said to that small congregation, as I imagine it, today these words are fulfilled in your ears. You had come, and you would soon accomplish the work of redemption necessary to heal for all eternity the brokenhearted. That must have been music in the ears of that congregation. But your word is here, and it has never faded, and it will never fail, and always accomplishes that which you intend. I pray that the words of Isaiah, the words of Psalm 6, the words of Luke 4 would be music in our ears. Jesus, that we would hear in our spirit your very mouth speaking them to our heart, giving us the same assurance that our Savior, who heals the brokenhearted, can set us free. And just as surely as the ears of that congregation audibly heard your vocal tones, I pray that our faith would supply, Lord Jesus, for the distance that we sometimes feel from the days you walk this earth and would bring us back face to face with our Savior in our hearts. So it's no less real to us 2,000 years removed from when you walked the earth as it was to those who listened then that our God is mighty to save. And that is your grace alone and your shed blood and your broken body that provides hope for the brokenhearted. We take refuge in that fact and in your word this morning. Pray, Holy Spirit, you would direct this time to give you glory so that your word may be manifest and evident and rooted in our heart and produce fruit. We trust in you, not in the man giving the message, but in the man who died to give this message. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Lord. If you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 6. On the second Sunday of the month, we do a psalm. We're getting our way through the book. This is our sixth month, and next month we'll be in chapter 7. A quick confession for you this week. I enjoy this Sunday. I look forward to it a lot because it's a little break from maybe the norm. We're going through Matthew. Next week we'll be back in Matthew chapter 5. So sometimes I look forward to the Psalm of the Month series because it's new territory for me and perhaps I'm motivated by fresh revelation and a new section of Scripture to study. This week, was, that was not the case. I spent the first four days reading and rereading, wondering how I was going to put together a message with not very much faith that I would be able to do so after a while. And then some phone calls started to come in. Uh, towards the end of the week, and especially last night, and I realized that Psalm chapter 6 
is as needful for our ears this morning, mine and anyone else who can relate to sorrows and pain, as it was on the lips of the man who spoke it so many years ago in the ancient times, namely David. I've titled this message, The Bridge from Pain to Hope. We're all familiar with pain, but the most familiar associations with pain are hopelessness. As I see it today, most people who struggle have sorrows, have griefs that are really beyond what they know they can bear. They might resort to some means to deal with it, but seldom is it the means that Psalm 6 proclaims, or Jesus Christ later identifies in Him and in His work, and implicitly is between the lines in Psalm chapter 6. People run to many things to deal with their pain. How do we build a bridge from pain to hope? What gives us that feeling that we all long for and tell each other it's going to be all right? Why don't you sleep on it? It'll be better tomorrow. I promise you things will look up. What gives us the right to say such a thing? What gives us the right to hope such a thing? There's only one answer. It's found in the Word of God. But there's many substitutions. There's many lies that we use to build a bridge from pain to hope. The Word of God destroys every carnal one, every evil one, every deceiving one, and replaces it with the only way, truth, and life. And that will be the sum of this message this morning and really will govern the theme. And I'll try to draw on that analogy of a bridge from pain to hope several times to hopefully shed light on Psalm chapter 6. And I hope it's beneficial to you if you find yourself in a situation like some of the phone calls I got this week, wrestling with things that are too big for you to bear. I want to remind you of Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, a familiar section of Scripture. The second Beatitude is, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we mentioned that in recent weeks. And it's surprising to me that the word blessed and those who mourn are included in the same sentence, to tell you the truth. How many of us have considered situations, circumstances, conditions of the heart, pain, sorrow, a reason to mourn a blessing? How can a reason to be sad, to be undone, feel like we're out of control, not much to look forward to? How in the world could that be considered a blessing? Well, the key and the answer is in the second half of the Beatitude, for they shall be comforted. The bridge from pain to hope is how comfort comes for those who mourn that turns a sorrow, a pain, a struggle, a trial into a blessing. Psalm 6 provides a very personal glimpse of this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Provides a very vulnerable heart perspective of this principle at work in an individual. And this is David again. It's an application example, a personal example of a man who is really struggling and in anguish. It's a personal example of a sweeping biblical theme. And that theme is that there is hope and there is healing for the brokenhearted. For the rest of the message, I'd like to organize it by five parts with this heading, Elements of David's Painful Song. The heading of this psalm in chapter 6, To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Some of that is musical terminology, but it reminds us that this is poetry here. It's beautiful script. It's imagery, and it's a song that David sung to quiet his own heart. And then he wrote it and presented it as a worship song so that others could benefit from its words, its theme. There's a shift, I think, definitely in the message of the song, and I, I wonder if it was in the music as well. 
I'll give you kind of a precursor, a highlight to be, um, keep your eyes open for it. Between chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 6, there's a distinct shift in the song. And just to provide some uh, maybe imagination for you, say there were stringed instruments, there was a whole ensemble that gathered in David's royal courts. I should say the Lord's royal courts under his kingship, under David. And he commissioned the song. He wrote it. He presented it to all these musicians. I imagine the song probably started in maybe a minor key, had a mournful note. And there were the stringed instruments that would open the refrain. And they would sing words like this. Psalm chapter 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Maybe a forlorn tone continues in that sense. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O God, for I am languishing. Maybe the music reflected some of the languishing, the lost tones, as he's struggling for hope under extreme pressure and anxiety. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord. And then there's a pause. How long is the cry? And in verse 4, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of my grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And then here the symbols might come in. The music might build. And there might be a pause and a crescendo as we see this shift in theme. Verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So there we have David's penitent psalm as it's called. A psalm that confesses great weakness, but also great hope in his God. And now we'll try to break it down into parts. Elements of David's painful song. I think what impressed me first was in verse 1. And I've labeled this element the nature of soulish pain. The nature of sorrow in the soul and the heart. The deepest recess is that sometimes hard to describe, but inescapable as a feeling. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David is acutely aware of the nature of soulish pain, which falls into two categories that are apparent in his opening refrain. Number one, the pain of perdition, and number two, the pain of discipline. There are two kinds of pain in the soul, two kinds of anguish that are felt by the human being in this sinful and this fallen world. One is the sorrow of perdition or judgment. It's the guilt that you justly feel for your sins. It is a precursor to hell. It is the sorrow, the anguish, the separation anxiety from you and your Creator that is inescapable and inevitable. You may look for ways to deny it, suppress it, Calm it, medicate it, therapy it, whatever. Try to make it go away. But the inescapable sense of separation from a holy God, 
for a wicked sinner in the most honest moments of their penitent soul is the pain of perdition. And whether we admit it or not, it remains. And there's only one way for it to be alleviated. And that is for someone else to be punished for our sin that deserves condemnation apart from God's presence, separated from His holiness as to not stain His glory for eternity. We know that answer in Jesus Christ. And that provides the hopeful and helpful pain category number two. For those who find their hope for perdition, who find their sin atoned for in the blood of Jesus, trust that His suffering stripes broken back, death and burial will cover the penalty of their sin. Then for them, they still feel sorrow, this second category of individuals. They still feel pain. They still know the anguish of the soul. But this is the pain of discipline. It's not the pain of perdition. It's the kind of pain that is a sanctifying agent that God uses to make you more like Him, to make you recognize your need, to make you understand that you are lost without Him and He alone holds hope for your future. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. This pain of discipline is revealed in greater detail as the book of Hebrews so eloquently unveils Jesus Christ as the theme the hope of every prefiguring and hopeful prophecy of the Old Testament, one by one, they're revealed in Christ in this glorious book. And then in Hebrews 12, 1 through 7, we see the purpose of sorrow for the believer also revealed. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and you remember, these were the witnesses that were even sawn in two, imprisoned, stoned, and killed for their faith. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, those of whom the world was not worthy. In light of those people who have endured afflictions even greater than the ones that you might experience right now, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this was the work that set us free from the pain of perdition. Now we see a purpose for the sorrow we still feel. Verse 3, Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. and You have not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. A pain of discipline. A sanctifying agent. God uses sorrow for the believer to make him holy. To make him more like Christ. 
make him rely on him. And it is, in fact, not a sign of a curse. But we can truly say, blessed are the mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because it says right there in Hebrews, that discipline, pain, and sorrow is actually a sign that you are a legitimate son or daughter of Christ. If you trust in him, that he has purpose in the pain. And this, as we get back to David's psalm, is really his cry. O Lord, the rebuke I feel and the discipline that I feel, let it not be in your anger. Discipline me not in your wrath. David knows that there is a just wrath of God that is endured by those who are not his children. He is asking that the Lord would find favor, that the Lord would visit him with his favor, that he would be a legitimate son, and that he would not, and that this great trial that is on him would not be a precursor to hell, but would be a sanctifier that would make him more holy, reminding him that his heavenly Father was shaping and making him into his image, and that in that he would find faith and hope that the sorrow would be alleviated, and at the end of it, he would be better than at the start. The nature of soulish pain, it's either the pain of perdition or the pain of discipline. And this psalm is a hopeful prayer that our pain would be one of discipline when we place our faith in our Savior. Point number two, elements of David's painful song, the felt reaches of sorrow. How far does sorrow reach? How deep is its its effects? What What is the breadth of pain that some people have to go through? Well, David was one that was acquainted, not as much as Christ was with our own sorrows and griefs, but in quite a big measure. Paul was another. Both of them were saints that have gone before, which fall into the category of the spirit of Hebrews, which says, we look to God's faithfulness, His holiness shaping pain, and the testimony of one like David and Paul to give us hope for our own. And this is his testimony in verse 2. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I feel like I am getting weaker by the day, less effective, less purpose, more and more hopeless. This languishing, as this psalm declares, is both in body and in mind. It's not just that he's embracing or incurring the pain of age as his eyes grow dim and his you know, body grows less weak and he feels less able to recall or to apply his energies to any given task. It's more than that. It's a languishing of the soul. I believe David is in a deep depression at this time. He feels like each day he has less to look forward to than the day before. But as David describes his condition, the pain that he's feeling and this sorrow, it gets worse than just languishing. It's By worsening degrees, he describes the reaches of the sorrow, the breadth of the pain that he's experiencing in this prayer. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Then he says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. This is poetic language that refers to the very core of our physical and emotional being. Their very elemental essence, our foundations. Just as the skeleton is the frame for the body, if you were to remove it, it would have nothing to structure, to support Or the foundation of a building is necessary and none of its edifices, none of its windows will stay in a place of stability if that foundation is removed. If we find our foundation, our skeleton, our bones troubled, it absolutely pervasively affects every other aspect of our being. David was not just feeling like he was getting worse and worse, but to the point where his bones themselves, both spiritually and and emotion, or physically and emotionally, themselves were threatened. 
He goes on with one more degree to explain, My soul is also greatly troubled. This reminding us that it wasn't just a physical ailment, though that is likely the case, but also his soul. He's struggling with his body, not being able to be healthy and vibrant, with hope for tomorrow or strength for that day, but he's also struggling with the condition of his soul. And there is no greater sickness than that of the soul, where you doubt your ability to reckon with tomorrow, and worse yet, eternity. But you, O Lord, he says in verse 3, and then there's an interesting break. He just says, how long? And at this point, David's prayer dramatically cuts short. It abruptly ends. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? It's as if he can't go on. He's describing pain that is unbearable. He comes to the end of his confessional rope and just cries out, How long? The anguish cry for help of a drowning man before he ever sees a life raft. All he sees is the ocean expanse as far on all sides as you can possibly imagine. Not a smokestack, not a bright light, just the waning sun on the horizon. How long in this sea of forgetfulness can I tread water? And it's just cut short right there. It's this hopeless note the song strikes at this point. This to describe the felt reaches of sorrow. This is a very honest psalm. There are those Christians, you might be familiar with them, and I don't mean to point fingers specifically, but generally I think we're all susceptible to this. You ever pasted on a fake smile or someone ever asked you the question, how are you doing today? And you give the pat answer just fine. You give that plastic social smile that everyone expects just because you know that's what they want to hear. This is the opposite of that. What if everyone was as honest and vulnerable in every conversation? Now we would be a mess. But but there is a place to vent. And there is a place to totally turn inside out emotionally. And it is before the throne of God. You know, there might be a place for a plastic smile every now and again, one to another. If we can't trust to just bear our souls before each other. But there is no place for plastic smiles before the King of Kings. Because He knows your soul to the deepest parts already. And it would be better for you. And healing will come quicker for the troubled if you bear your soul like David did. Even if you run out of words and your cry is just, how long? Wait, pray, think, follow David's example and see what happens next. The nature of soulish pain is such that there's a purpose in it. David knows, he prays that it wouldn't be a precursor to hell but that he would be shaped by it. And then he is honest about the reaches of the sorrow. And then number three, he begins to make his requests and he provides grounds for that appeal. So requests and grounds for appeal, verses two through five. In David's confession of the great lengths of his sorrow, he also makes these requests. Number one, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, Lord. Provide me answers I do not deserve. Give me that which there is no meritorious basis for. Extend your loving kindness to me. Just, I need grace. I have nothing to show for it. And make this note as well. David does not expect this prayer to earn him the right for it to be answered. When David asks for God's gracious intervention, he's not saying maybe I'll earn it after the end of this really honest or lengthy or eloquent prayer. No, throw himself at the mercy of God's grace, understanding he has no grounds in himself, no grounds in himself, to expect an answer. 
only grounds by making an appeal, as we'll get to here shortly, of God's nature. He asks for grace. He says also, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He asks to be put back together for a restoration to occur, for God's recreative and resurrection power to be evident in both mind and body. He continues, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? And then in verse four, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. The language implies he feels that God has turned his back on him and he wants God to visit him with his favor again, show his deliverance to his soul in exile. Turn, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And the final request is for salvation. And this salvation is comprehensive once again. As David has said, he is troubled not just in body, but to the core of his very being. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. And then here is the basis, the grounds for his appeal. How does David see a bridge possible from pain to hope? What grounds does he give for faith that this prayer would be answered? It's right here. Eternal Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. The grounds for David's appeal in this psalm are twofold. Number one, the nature of God. And number two, God's ultimate purpose for man. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And then note verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? This is the basis, primary doctrine. You must understand who God is. You must understand who you are. David knows that he was created by God. The original intent of which was for him to give praise. To remember the great works of his God. And to echo those back to him in glorious thanksgiving and glorious proclamation. But in order for him to do this, he needs salvation. In order for his mind to be set free to take joy in his situation and have faith beyond the pain, he makes an appeal to the nature of God revealed in his steadfast love. God, on the basis of who you are, that you are gracious, you are forgiving, Because you so love the world, you will send your son, which would be the position of David in this time in history. And for us, because you so love the world that you sent your son, I make this appeal. Give me faith beyond the pain that I might fulfill my ultimate purpose, which is to praise you in the valley and to praise you on the mountain. Give me wings like eagles. Renew my youth to fly above this storm. Let me feel the uplift of your spirit. Give me your pinions. Give me your feathers. Lift me. I am unable to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I appeal only to your nature, which I know is loving and kind and gracious and quick to forgive by the blood of your son that I might fulfill my ultimate purpose to worship you in spirit and in truth. Number four element of David's painful song, the danger of a weakened soul. I think David recognizes in his broken down condition the great danger that faces him and the biggest danger would be mentally. The biggest danger would be in his soul. That he would provide or that he would resort to some other bridge from pain to hope. He says in verse 6, I am weary with my own groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. 
It grows weak because of all my foes. And the poetic language here might remind us that our eyesight, our vision, our perception, our ability to discern is greatly hampered when we're blinded by the threat of tomorrow, by the fear of what pain promises. And we can't see clearly with the eyes of faith beyond what the circumstances seem to hold for us, crisis right now. Well, in this state, the danger of a weakened soul, as I've labeled point number four, it's important to understand that there is a divine, a sovereign separation between David's honest confession, I am weary, I am languishing, and the promises of God, what shall be. In verse nine, he says, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. So David receives joy before he is obviously rescued. His soul is rescued before his body is healed. His joy is returned to him before his enemies are vanquished. Before the circumstances change, faith rushes into his heart. There is a divine and sovereign space between the pain you feel right now and the promises of God's deliverance in the future. There is an intended path, the valley of the shadow, the trial and the temptations, the problems and the weariness in this short lifespan and eternity. The rest that's promised in heaven is embraced by a faith so great in the believer, even though it's feeble at times, it overcomes in the end, and those who endure receive a crown of righteousness, because in the valley of the shadow, in the throes of life, when all circumstances showed all around them nothing to look forward to, they still believe that Christ's blood had purchased heaven for their soul. They received joy before they stepped into heaven. They had endurance before they had the prize in hand. They were faithful before they received the crown. But the danger for the weakened soul is to find something else, to bridge the gap, to bridge the gap between promises and pain, to make a bridge of our own design between pain and hope. What do we resort to sometimes in these false bridges? Well, it's as if the enemy stands at the doors and and knocks in an antichrist way. We know Christ stands at the door and knocks in revelation at the church and pleads with the church to let him in. There's a deceiver that also stands at the door of our soul. And I believe he looks for the opportunity of the trials and the weariness of life to come and to whisper incessantly in your ear, No one understands and no one cares. In the ear of just about everyone, I'm sure you can relate. In your darkest moments, your deepest depressions, the harshest of trials, there's a voice ringing in your ear. I don't think anyone can really understand me. And I'm not sure if anyone really cares. Some people may pretentiously try. They may offer a little bit, but but in reality, I can't relate, nor can they to me. That is the enemy. Standing, whispering at the door of your heart, waiting for self-pity to throw it open so he can come in and erect a bridge. What is his bridge between pain and hope going to look like? Will it look like relationships that you resort to to give you hope in the moment, but in the end you know are sowing into even more pain in the future if you honestly assess them in light of Scripture, if they're not built on the Lord's covenants and his design? Do they look like ideas that are postulated in culture, pop psychology, and just different helpful hints to get you through the day that really aren't rooted in Scripture, 
but are centered in man's ability to save himself? Do they look like possessions, addictions, things we buy, purchase, resort to, things we self-medicate with to make us happy for the moment, but it's such a fleeting joy that it almost deepens the irony of our sorrow and it's doubly as bad when their sheen wears off as moth and rust corrupts these false promises and bridges? Are they the philosophies of man that say we can better ourselves through reasoning? Do they end in the ultimate suicide? Is that the bridge we think will dull the pain? We'll take it away once and for all. Are they people, things, surroundings, circumstances, therapies, diversions of any kind that we are willing to let the enemy who whispers in our ear, no one cares, and there's no one who understands, build as a false promise, as a bridge from pain to hope, but really it's just a bridge from pain to hell. This is the temptation. This is the danger of the weakened soul. But the glory of Scripture is that it shines a bright hot light into the recesses, into the caverns, to the crevices of what we are wont to do in our suffering and reveals it for what it is. Every skeleton in David's closet is laid bare in this psalm. And he knows he's in a bad way, but he also knows he better stay in his prayer closet until his joy comes from something else than a bridge designed by Satan to give him hope for the moment, but will only end in perdition. This is a great moment in this psalm. David realizes his weakness, but it's about to make that shift. And suddenly the bridge is in place. And this is a bridge by God's design with pillars that are unshakable. That all of the sudden promises that his enemies, enemies of his soul, enemies of his body, enemies of his calling, themselves will be troubled, yet he will be firm in his faith. And here is the shift we feel in verse 8. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And I just asked this question. What gave David the courage to suddenly go from a weeping, broken, confessing individual who doesn't even have any words left at certain points in this prayer to offer to God? In the same selection here of sentences, how does he go from that utter brokenness to a confidence that commands his enemies to back off? I think there was a bridge built from pain to hope, that was outside of himself, that God sovereignly built in him. And it's evidenced in these closing confessions, these declarations, these confident cries. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, verse 8, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. There is someone who understands, if no one else in the world does. There is someone who cares, and he's the God that made me, and I'm created to give him glory. And he created a way for me to be reconciled with his good graces when I am washed free of my sin, sorrow, weakness, and decrepit state by the blood of his son. This is all between the lines as we apply the rest of scripture to this prayer. And then verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I have labeled this last section of the prayer, verses 8 through 10, as bridges built or a bridge built <clears throat> and tables turned. And as we notice this sudden shift of mood in verse 7 and 8, this lingering question occurs to me. How does a prayer of anguish become a prayer of faith in a moment? How can this happen so fast? How can David be lifted from his sorrow, from his despair so quickly? Where did this bridge come from? Where did David find the strength to confidently declare his hope in the same collections of sentences that were just moments before at the end of his rope? 
Well, I think the answer comes when we view David's emotional testimony in this song alongside biblical themes of restoration. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 52, we'll close with some passages in this text under this final point. Actually, Isaiah 61 is where we'll begin. Now, what is between the lines in David's songs, in many of the Psalms, becomes the lines of the prophets, especially in Isaiah. So as we look to confirm what David's answer was to his emotional trial, as we look to confirm that by the testimony of the rest of Scripture, and especially the biblical theme of restoration, it's picked up with a clarity and a truth that is really unparalleled, I feel, outside of the book of Isaiah, which is reiterated in the New Testament as well. And these verses are glorious as we read. This is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. A prophecy of the Messiah here. Verse 1, the the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And that is exactly what David was in that psalm. To proclaim liberty to the captives. You remember he was asking for salvation, for deliverance. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember that David was asking for the Lord to turn and to deliver him. And the day of vengeance of our God. Remember how it's either the pain of perdition or the pain of discipline. The Lord in the death of his son has avenged sin once and for all. To comfort those who mourn. The end of verse 2. And then verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Ashes, of course, were used for great mourning. Covering your head with ashes was a sign of penitence and repentance and sorrow for your sin and your state apart from God. The oil of gladness, again in verse 3, instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That they shall build, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall, shall uh, stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen. Well, you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor. They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is the hope explicitly stated in the Messiah for the languishing, sorrowful nation of Israel whose very bones were troubled, whose soul was anguished. The lost people of God, their fortunes turned on a dime as they realized that their Messiah was sent to bind up the brokenhearted, and that when He came, it would be the year of the Lord's favor. Their sin would be avenged for. They could wash off, feel the washing of the water of the Word, cleanse the ashes from their head, and feel the Holy Spirit drape across their spiritual form the garments of salvation, and adorn their head, now redeemed by Christ's holy blood, with a headdress, of His glory. And now they stand as a light. Now they represent a refuge. Their shame is turned into a safe haven for others. 
the end, the destiny that their sin foretold is completely turned on its head. The tables are completely turned in Christ. Upside down, the enemy's plans are foiled and thwarted because of the Messiah that would come. This is the answer that allowed David's abrupt change of mood in his psalm explicitly stated in Isaiah. You might ask, what is the price that is paid for this bridge? This bridge of God's peace through His salvation in the blood of His Son to bring us from pain to hope. In this same book, you don't necessarily have to turn there. I'm sure these words will be familiar to you. In Isaiah 52, 53, excuse me, we read in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs, speaking prophetically of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we were healed. Right there is the price of your peace. The chastisement, the perdition, the judgment, the sorrow that your sin deserves, that you would languish in for all eternity, receiving the just payment for your sin, has been paid for by Jesus' own suffering and death on the cross. This is the glorious price that Christ paid. It says in the same chapter, in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. It goes on to say how God will give a great inheritance for everyone who trusts that salvation and that bridge between pain and hope. Now with this in mind, Imagine yourself, the beginning of the prayer of this message, I was trying to put myself in the congregation where Jesus spoke and read these very words in Luke chapter 4. Imagine yourself sitting there that Sabbath Sunday or whatever in that synagogue in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago in Luke 4.17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. That is, this scroll was given to Jesus. He, Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. Remember how David's very eyesight was weary from his sorrow and from his crying. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in verse 20, I'm sure a hush falls over the crowd. As there's a hush even among us now, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, we can say the same. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If you are one who is acquainted with griefs like David and finds yourself in a state of helpless brokenheartedness, of sorrow and weakness, so much so that the degrees, if you were to be honest, fall short of your own words to describe them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. 
and in your sovereign Lord, through the blood of his righteous son, a bridge has been built from pain to hope that can turn your prayer of anguish to a prayer of faith on a dime, in a moment. I can't promise you when that moment will be, but I can promise you if you throw your heart before him and if you go to the throne of grace with your anguish, it will surely come. It will surely come. Blessed are the mourn, are they those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In light of this truth, we can confidently conclude that your sorrow, my sorrow, our pain, the anguish of our soul, provides us the glorious opportunity to witness the manifold grace of God magnified to our soul. If we didn't experience pain, how would we experience so great of a salvation? If we weren't lost, how could we appreciate coming home after that cold, dark, fearful night, wandering in a lost forest, scared at every noise and broken stick in the distance, and suddenly we see the light through the trees and we find ourselves home again. Without the fear of being lost, without hope and a guide, without the sorrow of knowing that we are hopeless in our own strength to better our circumstance, how would we appreciate so great a salvation? And in that, my brothers and sisters, co-sufferers, co-laborers in the faith, is a great overarching reason for us to smile, an eternal smile that we've culminated in eternity when we see what we're smiling for revealed in all its fullness. If you would close your eyes and pray with me this morning. Uh, Father, this week I received some phone calls and you know them and you know the circumstances where a message like this, Lord, is what I need and what they need when we find ourselves as we all do and David did in such a languishing and such a despair. Oh, Father, I pray that we would hang on to our Lord Jesus as long as it takes for our hearts to be quickened with the reality that joy comes in the morning. And joy for the believer will dawn in the glorious morning, the most glorious morning of all, when we pass from this veil of tears and arise in newness of life in eternity with you, where the sorrow and the sickness, the disease and the anguish, the stress and the pain, the, dis- the, the depression and the discouragement, the failures, the broken relationships, The disheartening circumstances, the fear of tomorrow is all washed away as far as our sin is, as far as the east is from the west. Only the cleansing blood of our Lord Jesus Christ has the power to do such a thing. So we glorify your name, Jesus. We pray that the basis of our appeal would be according to your steadfast love, evident and most magnificently in the cross, that we would find hope for our soul's pain in the bridge that the cross provides to hope in eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for your answer that your death has provided. And thank you for the victorious future we look forward to, Lord, made proof positive by your resurrection. Lord, I want to pray specifically for any souls that struggle, that languish here, listening even in this building right now. Lord, I pray that as this song plays, that they would find their heart's cry attached 
not to the bridges that we're tempted to build to dull or dim the pain, to provide a deceptive way to hope again. I pray that those would crumble and that you would replace them with the unshakable foundation of Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation and the only true source of joy. Lord, bless us as we conclude these moments together. Lord, bless us with a joy that is enduring and a peace that passes understanding. In your holy name we pray. Amen.